Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest is one of the most well-known vegan activists and educators in the UK. He is widely known for his viral YouTube videos, openly debating the public, and his speech, You Will Never Look At Your Life In The Same Way Again, has over 4 million views on YouTube. He is a speaker and author of the book, This Is Vegan Propaganda and Other Lies The Meat Industry Tells You, and has also recently launched his own ethical and sustainable clothing brand, Idea. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Ed Winters, aka Earthling Ed, to the podcast. Welcome, Ed. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much, Serena. It's a a pleasure to be here and I appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's great to have you on. And just to kick us off, more than a bit being a business person or even a social media influencer, you are best known for being a vegan activist. Can you tell me a bit about your journey to becoming vegan? Absolutely. I've been vegan now for about seven and a half years. So I, I initially went vegan in January 2015. But actually, uh, I'd been vegetarian for around eight months or so before that. And the reason I went vegetarian initially is I came across this story, which was in the BBC. And it was about a truck that had crashed on the way to a slaughterhouse near Manchester. And the truck was carrying about six and a half thousand chickens. And I was just reading the story and I ended up empathizing with chickens, which I never, ever expected to do. I'd been raised eating meat, dairy and eggs, you know, wearing animal products, using products, tests on animals. So it was never something I'd ever really stopped and and taken any considerable time to think about, you know, my relationship with other animals. But in this moment, reading about what was happening to these chickens in this crash, the numbers of them who had been killed, all these terrible things, I started empathizing with them. And I thought to myself, hang on a minute, you know, how do my values and how do my beliefs around how animals should be treated and my views about reducing animal suffering and being against animal cruelty fit in with the fact that I consume products which undeniably come from systems that cause harm, suffering and cruelty to animals. So I went vegetarian as a result of that. And then I went vegan about eight months or so later when I saw a documentary called Earthlings, which is um, a rather harrowing film, but a pretty objective view in terms of what we do to animals in in all these different industries in which we exploit them. And uh, that's what made me go vegan shortly afterwards. And you do have sort of 500k 600k followers and subscribers on instagram and on youtube and so you know even more than going vegan through your activism you've become well known uh, within the vegan community and uh, you know beyond that that journey of sort of becoming you know achieving that sort of i guess like fame and becoming well known how did that journey happen and what was your experience of that That's a really good question. It's not one I get asked that often, actually. It's a really good one. Um, I think it was a little bit of luck, a little bit of determination. The reason I started it was I had this idea that being vegan wasn't simply good enough on its own. In a way, and I speak to a lot of vegans about this, when we go vegan, the thing that annoys us the most isn't necessarily that we don't get to eat all the different foods we used to eat, but but more that we hadn't made that change, change earlier. And I thought about myself and how I wish I'd you know, thought about this before. I wish I'd kind of seen some of this footage before. I wish someone had maybe spoken to me about these issues before, but they hadn't. And I realized that when we see things that need changing, 
whether they're you know, issues related to, to social justice, issues related to climate justice or whatever it may be, to simply be aware of these things and, and change ourselves isn't really good enough, or at least not anymore with the urgency of these problems. It's kind of a responsibility in a way to at least speak about these issues so that other people have the opportunity to assess for themselves how they feel. You know, with animals, it's, it's a relatively unique situation because we all have very strong values when it comes to animals, especially in the UK where we have the RSPCA, which was like the first animal welfare charity to be set up in the world. We have some very strong anti-animal cruelty laws when it comes to pets. And so we have these ideas around our relationship with animals, but actually we don't really think too deeply about how that actually translates into our actions. And so for me at that time, when I'd first gone vegan, I started to slowly feel uncomfortable with the fact that I was aware of certain things, but maybe other people weren't aware of them. And then I needed to kind of speak up about that. So I started a YouTube channel, um, set up a, an Instagram, was briefly on Twitter where I could still uh, still handle that minefield. And then eventually over time, it just kind of grew. I just basically found a kind of, a, I suppose, a niche in a way where I was able to use my skills and my talents, but also apply them to veganism. And I guess I came in at a, a relatively early time because back in 2016, early 2016, when this really started for me in terms of, of the activism side of things, it was a time where people were really beginning to go vegan, but there really wasn't that much content online. There weren't that many content creators or influencers, you know, especially talking about the kind of animal rights and environmental aspects of the problem. And so I kind of came in at a time, I suppose, where there was a growing demand, but not that much supply in terms of this content. So I kind of took that moment and also combined, I suppose, the research, the education I'd done and started just making these videos, going out on the street and having conversations with people and interviewing them about their relationship with animals and their views on veganism. And kind of slowly over time, just started building up a profile and, and diversifying my content, I suppose. You mentioned there that you sort of took to these various social media platforms because I suppose you felt, you know, a part of making the change isn't only from the change that you're making within your own decisions as a consumer, but also kind of sharing knowledge, I suppose. I'm just wondering if you feel your debate style or the way that you engage in, I suppose, like argument around the subject has changed over the course of, you know, your your time as a vegan and also in the in the public, you know, sphere and through those social media platforms. Absolutely. I mean, the debate content, I suppose, and the interviews I have with people have always formed a very strong part of my online work. And I remember at the beginning, I hadn't really ever before in my life done much interviewing. You know, I'd done a fair bit of public speaking, but I'd never really gone out and just spoken to strangers and asked them questions and and had almost kind of like this debate scenario emerge as a result. And so it was, you know, pretty new territory for me. And I remember having a couple of interviews or, you know, speaking to a couple of people right at the beginning and realizing that these conversations weren't necessarily going in the direction that I wanted them to. We weren't reaching commonality. We were kind of talking past one another, kind of the classic arguments where everyone has their side of the story, but no one listens to the other side of the story. And so I kind of felt that I wasn't really being a very good debater, but also secondly, wasn't really helping in terms of passing on some of this information or some of these beliefs that I had. And so I'm fully aware that vegans have a, a bit of a, a reputation. <laughs> At times we can have a little bit of an optics problem. And, you know, sometimes that can be our own fault, but I often think it's not necessarily just the fault of vegans. We have these stereotypes of people that 
sometimes can be true, but often are not. And so for me, what I realized is that if I'm going to speak to people about veganism, it's really important that I don't perpetuate the narrative that vegans have of being aggressive and militant and extreme and dogmatic and lacking sense of humor and all of these things. And so I, I kind of began to shape my conversations and debates and mold them into something that firstly made me feel more comfortable, but also secondly, I, I found to be more effective. And so I really just want to understand people's values and, and views on these issues, because my belief is that actually vegans and non-vegans share a lot more in common than potentially we initially realize. The foundations of why I'm vegan and vegans are vegans in general, and not these kind of unusual or extreme ideas, they're actually very societally accepted ideas, which is just simply, hey, you know, if we can reduce the negative impact that we have on others and we can reduce animal suffering and cruelty and as a consequence, choose foods that are better for the environment, then surely that's something that is a very reasonable thing to do. And so I think for me, these debates I have with people, I ask a lot of questions because in a way, I think it's about holding a mirror up to our own values and our own beliefs and saying, hey, veganism isn't something new. It's merely just understanding that these are values we already have. It's just because of the way that we've lived, because of our cultures, because of our societies and traditions. Often, especially when it comes to food, the choices we partake in don't necessarily line up with the values that we already have. I think that can definitely transcend to various kind of like socio-political disagreements and, and you know, disagreements in, in ideological beliefs and, and stuff like that. And really, you know, having the capability to be able to debate in a way that's healthy can be very beneficial, I think, to anybody's life for various reasons, but particularly, you know, when exchanging ideas with people who have, you know, very different perspectives and understandings of their reality to you. And yeah, I guess to give a bit of context in these videos, you essentially speak to the public and they often have, you know, an opposing opinion to you and you sort of debate around the various ideas and themes um, around sort of like veganism. And I think very few people would be able to say that they could maybe do something like that or have the qualities or confidence to be able to kind of put themselves out there like that. I guess I'm wondering if you've always sort of been the type of person who can put themselves out there and really articulate your thoughts and opinions in a way that's just very thoughtful and kind of wanting to seek a solution. That's a good question as well. I I don't think so. I mean, I I don't like confrontation. I've always tried to avoid arguments and confrontation um, as much as I possibly can because I don't I don't really like the idea of having to explain myself or you know ending up in a situation where I'm you know where relationships or or friendships could be compromised by um, arguments and such. So I've never naturally leaned into that kind of thing. I, I didn't really do debates when I was at university or, or at school or anything, but I did always enjoy public speaking. I always enjoyed presentations and things like that. But I, I guess potentially my, I don't want to say fear of confrontation, but potentially my desire to avoid confrontation is a strong driver in why I try and have the conversations that I do with people. Because I don't think that these conversations need to be confrontational. I don't think they need to be argumentative. I think it's absolutely possible to disagree with someone about something, but still have a very informed, polite, respectful discussion. 
and I guess, you know, once one sits down with me, I'm not under the impression that after 20, 25, 30 minutes, they're going to leave the debate table that I've set up and have completely changed their paradigm and worldview. That's not the expectation that I place on myself or on them, but just more that in that time that we have together, we can reach commonality and end with a handshake and potentially, hopefully, they can end with a, a deeper and more well-rounded understanding of what being vegan means. And I suppose the reasonableness of that. So no, it was never something that I necessarily had thought too much about before I got into veganism. And confidence was definitely a big thing right at the beginning. I used to get so nervous and I still do a little bit. I debate with college students. um, I debate with farmers. I do live television debates. I do in-person events where I debate with people who have opposing views. So I debate a wide range of people and I definitely still get that those nerves and I still, you know, lack confidence and still feel a little bit like, oh gosh, what if I don't know what to say? Or what if, you know, what if someone shows me up as not being, you know, this good debater or whatever label, you know, I, I hopefully can assign to myself. So that definitely does still creep in. But with everything, it's it's kind of practice. And part of the reason I think we often lack confidence in these conversations is because we're fearful that someone's going to mock us or humiliate us or, or not be respectful. But by, I think, fostering hopefully a respectful debate and a respectful conversation, it means that we're not looking to trip one another up. You know, we're not looking to find something that someone says that we can pinpoint and find a way to like shame them or like pick apart their arguments. It's just really a conversation where we understand that these are free flowing ideas And these are ideas that for many people can be new and novel ideas as well. And I think that helps just loosen some of those nerves and anxieties because, hey, it's just a conversation between two strangers about something that's really important and also hopefully really interesting as well. That's a really good point. And I think potentially a part of the reason why healthy debates are quite difficult in society is because of that sort of emotional charge that exists behind, you know, thoughts and opinions. And so when, yeah, I guess like there's a level of offense that's taken when you feel like your identity is being challenged, because essentially that's what your sort of opinions are, then there's a bit more of an emotional charge behind it. But many of our listeners are business leaders. And one thing that comes up quite a bit in our podcast is this idea of healthy conflict within an executive team or within a workplace. And I'm just wondering what skills you think you might need to be able to debate in a healthy way that maybe our listeners can take from that. I mean, for me, and this is another really good question. For me, I think listening is, it's kind of a bit of a cliche, but Listening also serves a kind of a selfish purpose because when we listen to what someone else is saying, it means that we can actually respond in a way that properly addresses what they're trying to say. I think often we go into conflicts, you know, whether they be social conflicts or you know, it could be business conflicts, whatever they may be. And we have an idea of what we want to say and the point that we want to put forward. And that's kind of what we take into these environments when actually sometimes I think it's more effective to stop listen to the point the other person is trying to say and directly address that in a way that, you know, hits the nail on the head. So I think listening is is great, but also I suppose body language is also really important. You know, for me, it's not just necessarily about what we say, but also how we say it as well. You know, watching our language, being aware of words that we're using and how they can be interpreted. I think it's, it's definitely a tricky question because emotion plays a huge part. And as you say, often with whether it's our professional careers or our personal lives, our identity is so wrapped up in these, I suppose, environments and in these beliefs. And I think especially now in, in the past 10 years or so that this kind of binary that exists 
you know, whether it's political binaries, social binaries, whatever they may be, have led to a lot of polarization because we've lost the ability to try and understand why people believe the things that they do. Sometimes we look at someone and we look at their beliefs and then we assign the entire value of that person based on their beliefs. When actually there's a reason why people think the things that they do. There's a reason why people have the values. There's a reason why people are bringing this side of the arguments, the conflict that we're currently engaging in. And I think often understanding the why is one of the most powerful things that we can do. You know, when someone sits down with me and and maybe they're argumentative, or maybe they say something that's kind of a little bit outrageous, or maybe something that if I was to really think about, I, you know, I could find hurtful or offensive, whatever word I may use in that situation. If I can stop for a second and reflect and think, okay, why is the person saying that? It makes the situation automatically more diffused because instead of viewing the person who is voicing their objections as merely being the physical and tangible representation of those objections, we can instead view them as being someone whose life experiences, whose social and personal experiences have led them to this moment where they're voicing these objections to us, which may frustrate us. But if we can understand that there's a mechanism behind there that's led them to this moment, it means we can detach some of that emotion and some of that irrationality from the individual and understand that there's a reason why they're saying that. Because it's not necessarily just about how we address what they're saying. It's about understanding why they're saying what they're saying in the first place. And that won't necessarily apply to every situation. Everyone thinks their opinion in that moment is valid. And everyone thinks that the point that they're taking or the position they're taking is the right position in that moment. And I think if we can understand a little bit about why they think that, that can also be very powerful in addressing the question of how we can get around this conflict as well. That's a really good point. And I think empathy sounds like a word that sticks out in terms of what you're describing there, sort of being able to have the capacity to really empathize why someone has an opinion rather than just looking at their opinion sort of on on face value. But yeah, I guess from a more internal perspective in terms of debating or dealing with conflict, because for many of our listeners, you know, conflict is a natural part of being in a workplace. It's something that comes up very naturally. And if resolved correctly, it can actually be incredibly beneficial. But I guess when someone is dealing with a certain type of conflict, is it important for there to be sort of an element of space between them and their thoughts and opinions and their values, essentially, because I think a lot of the reason why people kind of have that emotional charge and get offended by things and then maybe act in a way that they don't you know, necessarily want to act in or say something that they regret later on is because of that lack of space, maybe between them and their sort of values. Like, how can you not get offended, essentially, if someone doesn't agree with you? Yeah, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? And I guess it comes down to having a sense of emotional maturity um, within yourself. It can be hard when someone is saying something that obviously is going to bring out an emotional reaction to take a step back and not kind of take that initial feeling that you have. And I think for me, the way that I try to showcase this emotional maturity is by detaching somewhat the position someone is taking with them in that moment. And so what I mean by that is, let's say that I have a conversation with someone about eating animals and they take the position, well, 
um, you know, God says it's okay for me to do this, for example. And so therefore I think it's fine that we do all the things that we do to animals. Now in my head, I might go, oh my God, this person's justifying uh, all these terrible things that I've seen in videos and all these terrible things that I know are happening. That makes me really upset. I'm going to have an emotional reaction and tell him that he's an awful person for having these views. Now that, that's not going to be helpful and it's not very emotionally mature of me. But if I can stop and say, hang on a minute, you know, this college student said this thing. I don't agree with it, but I understand the reason why he said this is because he's been raised a Christian. His family are Christians. His grandparents are Christians. He's from a Christian community. And so he is merely a vessel of all of these ideas that have been handed to him throughout his entire life. Now I can, I can give myself space in that moment because I'm no longer viewing that person as merely saying something that I find upsetting. I'm viewing that person saying something which is based on all of these values and beliefs which have been assigned to him based on all of these external factors that have influenced his life. And so I can get a little bit of emotional distance from the, the initial feeling these things give me. But I also think we have to you know, give people space. Let's say we have a conflict. I think sometimes we have an expectation that conflict needs to be resolved in that moment. But actually, people resolve conflicts internally themselves. How often are we, have we had an argument with a loved one where it can become heated? It could be a spouse, a family member, a friend, whoever it is. We have an argument. We don't agree. The argument ends. And then we think about it and we go, actually, I was being quite irrational. And actually, you know, maybe I should have been the one to apologize. That space gives us a little bit of clarity as well. So I think sometimes the point of a conflict isn't necessarily to resolve the issue that we're having the conflict over, but maybe to put forward ideas that that person can then take with them afterwards and reflect on. And I suppose that in a way, that's what the debates I'm I have a trying to achieve. You know, like I said before, I don't have an expectation that someone after 30 minutes is going to go, oh, well, Ed, you've convinced me. I'm going to be vegan forever now. Well done. You know, I, I don't expect that to happen. But what my hope is, is that after that 30 minutes or so, over the next coming days or weeks, they think a little bit about the ideas that I put forward and they think about some of the arguments that I used. And internally, they come to reach these conclusions on their own. And I think that's what giving space can allow someone to do. You know, we put forward our arguments, we put forward our ideas, and then like a seed, we leave them to germinate and sprout and grow. And I think that's what giving space can can allow to happen more organically. And I think what you just said really illustrates kind of the importance of being able to have a debate or disagreement in a healthy way. Because, for example, if you were you know, the type of person to just say you're an awful person to people who don't agree with you, people who don't agree with veganism or just shouted at them, then that seed wouldn't be planted. Whereas being able to have a conversation and express points and arguments in kind of a calm way is more beneficial to what you want as an outcome, essentially. Um, and it, I guess it, it sort of comes back to this idea of, you know, having space and thinking about what is actually helpful for that conversation because it would be very easy to sort of have an emotional charge but thinking about what that person has experienced in their life and what has sort of led to them having their perspective but also you know thinking what do I actually want to achieve from this conversation do I want to just have an argument and for it to have no impact whatsoever or do I want it to plant that seed Absolutely. I mean, a lot of what we're talking about, I suppose, is feeling and how that can be used both positively and negatively. And I suppose when we have arguments with people or even any kind of conversation, 
the most important aspect is how that event makes us feel. I mean, if we think about like a day out that we've had recently that we enjoyed, maybe we went on a a family road trip, or maybe we went out with some friends and we were together the whole day. We don't remember every conversation that we had. We don't remember every detail of that moment. You know, our memories aren't intricate enough to be able to remember every single moment of experience that we've had, but we can remember how those things made us feel. We might think of a holiday that we had 10 years ago and not remember everything we did in that holiday, but remember that that holiday was really fun and we really liked it. And I suppose conflicts and arguments are much the same. You know, if we leave something and we feel awful and we feel like we've been disrespected and not listened to and spoken over and humiliated and all of these things, we're going to take that with us out of that conversation or out of that conflict. And we're going to allow that to dictate how we feel the actual conversation went. And I suppose part of the reason why I try and have debates in the way that I do with non-vegans is so that when we end the conversation and we have a handshake, I can leave that person hopefully with a positive feeling of that conversation because it's very unlikely they're going to remember everything that I said in those 30 minutes or so. It's very unlikely, but hopefully they can remember that I was rationable and reasonable and hopefully friendly and polite. And maybe I left them feeling more positively about veganism than they had at the beginning. And so I think often how we leave people feeling can even be more important than some of the things that we actually say. So if someone is clearly entering into an emotional state or is entering into an area of the conversation where it's clearly going to go downhill and we're going to have an awful argument, we're going to end up shouting, name calling, all of these things, and we're both going to leave feeling exhausted and ultimately, you know, negative about that experience. I think it reduces our ability to be able to actually reflect you know, afterwards about that experience in a way that has more objectivity to it. So I think feeling is a really big factor in these conversations as well. You know, how do we leave someone feeling as a result? And just showing a little bit of respect, I think is one of the most powerful ways that we can leave someone with a more positive feeling as a result of that conversation than they had beforehand. That's a really good point. And, and also can transcend to kind of any conversation you ever have or any interaction you ever have. It's sort of thinking about how do I want this person to feel when they come away from it, even, you know, outside of conflict. But yeah, a massive aspect of the debates that you have is, is your ability to persuade the people that you're having these debates with to kind of think in a different way, but to also, yeah, you also put forward some pretty interesting ideas and, and opposing ideas is to what they say. But a lot of our listeners are business leaders and so they'll need the tool of persuasion at various points through their business uh, growth and business journey. I'm just wondering if you have any kind of tips about how to utilize persuasion within, you know, an argument style, but even just within any kind of interaction. Yeah, another great question, definitely. I think versatility is super important. Not everyone we speak to has the same type of personality or will respond in the same way to particular arguments or particular styles of communication. You know, some people might be more reserved. Some people might be more outgoing. Some people may take more favorably to, you know, certain lines of communication. So I think having versatility and being able to read the room and read the particular individual we're speaking to is, is very important. You know, if someone comes into our office or, or wants to have a meeting, 
and they seem immediately, you know, charged. Maybe they're frustrated about something. Maybe they're upset. Maybe they feel like they've been wronged. The way that we speak to them might be different to someone who comes in and is really happy and excited and just wants to tell you some really good news. So I think it's kind of very obvious, but just reading that person and being flexible in the way that we communicate, I think is really powerful because it shows the person we're speaking to that we're being very mindful of how they are being and the arguments or whatever it is they want to talk about. So definitely versatility. And I think also being confident in yourself, I suppose, depending on, on what area we're talking about, being educated in these things. Now, as business leaders, you know, your listeners will already be fully educated in all of the matters in which their business endeavors are involved in. But I think also just having that confidence to be able to express yourself is very important. It's hard sometimes to say what we want to say. You know, often we might have a crystal clear image in our head of, of what we'd like to say, but actually saying it can be an altogether different problem within itself. And so I think being educated and having a clear understanding and a clear grasp of our beliefs, our values, of you know, our business, of whatever it may be, and then being able to actually, I suppose, be able to put these ideas forward in a way that's easily understood, that's comprehensive, that's simple in terms of terminology, I think is another powerful way of making sure that, you know, we are able to be adaptable and we are able to, I suppose, you know, read people and importantly, be able to have these constructive conversations at the end of the day. So being able to simplify ideas down to make these conversations more palatable and more easily understood as well. That's a really good point. I guess it comes back to, you know, listening and being aware of the states that people are in and and what kind of energy they're giving off as well. And I guess being malleable and adaptable to be able to fit around that um, really makes a great communicator. I just want to move over to the fact that you have created your own personal brand and your brand is, is like really based around you as an individual, but you have grown it and scaled it to a a very impressive size. I'm just wondering what that journey looked like. So how did you develop your own personal brand? You do your activism, but you have your own business now in idea, your own sustainable clothing brand. So how did you sort of transition from having a personal brand to then something that is making you money, essentially? I think it's really important that we all find kind of that USP, you know, that that thing that makes what we're doing stand out from what maybe other people in the same kind of field are doing. And so that was something that I worked on quite a lot at the beginning. And, you know, the, the debates that we've been speaking about, obviously in depth today, are, are really what pushed my brand, if that's the word we want to use, brand forward in the beginning. That's the kind of thing that I became more known for. But then I suppose it was about harnessing other skills. So I started doing a lot of public speaking, going to universities around the UK and delivering speeches to people and engaging in kind of Q&A environments. And also I studied film at university. So for me, I've always loved making films. I've always loved TV and, and film in general. And so one of the first things I did back in 2017 is my partner and I, we made a, a documentary together called Land of Hope and Glory. And that allowed us to start doing more interesting things. It allowed us to do some screenings, some more public speaking, more Q&As, and, and just slowly building up that kind of, I suppose, that image of myself as being someone who's online, but also someone who comes in into in-person scenarios as well and, and, and has this kind of public speaking persona. And on the back of that, I released this speech, the one that you referenced at the beginning, um, you will never look at your life the same way again. And that speech was received really well on YouTube, on, on Facebook. It got tens of millions of views on, on Facebook. And as you say, it's now on over 4 million on YouTube. And so that was really well received. And that helped me a lot because that 
meant that I started being invited to the US as well. So I started going to the US and engaging in different events and things there as well. So it's been it's been a gradual process of building. But for me, what's always kind of excited me about veganism and the plant-based space is its potential for for growth. I mean, there's business growth there, there's social growth as well. And it's something that I think this issue of what we do to animals, I don't think can be simply addressed by one method or one strategy. And so I think having this activist or educator kind of persona of like online informative content, in-person speeches and debates and Q and A's kind of fulfills one aspect of this message. But actually when, when I speak to people, it's not necessarily that people disagree with these ideas that I'm putting forward. It's just that they feel that often there is a lack of availability or a lack of access to being comfortably vegan. You know, we still think that it's inconvenient. We still think that there's not enough vegan options around and that some of these substitutes are obviously still not price competitive with some of their meat or dairy or egg counterparts. And so it's not just about giving people the why they should be plant-based and vegan. It's also giving people the how. So I have two restaurants as well. I have a restaurant in London and a restaurant in Brighton, obviously all plant-based. And then I've just released this clothing brand. And the reason for all of these different avenues that I've taken is because I think that there are so many gaps within the plant-based movement that still need filling. We still need more good vegan food. We still need more ethically, sustainably made clothing products. There are all these gaps that still need filling because this appetite for these different products and this appetite for this more kind of conscious, ethical, sustainable way of living is growing. But the supply of many of these products, I still don't think is where it needs to be. And so that's kind of why I've diversified in, in all these different ways is because Firstly, I think it's really exciting and I love having fingers and all these different vegan pies, but but also I think that there's a necessity for, for more availability and more accessibility, not just in terms of information, but in terms of tangible physical products as well. And I also recently opened up, um, back in late 2020, I co-founded an animal sanctuary in, in the Midlands of England. So a very different model, not a business model, but a, another model of which to create, I suppose, informative and uh, you know, hopefully influential content, you know, rescuing animals like pigs, cows, chickens, lambs, and sheep from farms and slaughterhouses and, and situations where they've been exploited. And not only giving them, you know, a nice life through which, you know, they can live the rest of their life, but also educating people about the personalities animals have. So <laughs> this is the thing about veganism. There's so many elements to it and there's so many ways to communicate the message. And from my perspective, there's a huge business opportunity in terms of, you know, if you're a business leader, there's a huge business opportunity from, from a personal perspective, from an investment perspective, but there's also a huge opportunity for education. And I'm just trying to hopefully harness both of those things simultaneously. And it certainly does sound like you are harnessing all of the different ways to, to kind of educate people about veganism through your various businesses. Certainly at this point in time, I think there are plenty more businesses that want to be ethical and sustainable, but it can often seem as a potentially daunting task because you have to scrutinize, I guess, your supply chain, for example, a lot more than a business that, that isn't considerate of those various aspects. You know, with the businesses that, that you have, how have you ensured that, you know, you're ethical and sustainable at kind of every level and you don't accidentally become a business that is sort of talking the talk, but then, you know, not actually uh, delivering on, on what you've promised? I think it's about being value driven. And I suppose in a way, 
the fortunate aspect of, of some of the things that I've set up is because they were set up at the beginning where I, I already had a clear idea of what these values were. It meant that before I even got the ball rolling, I had the ability to kind of like make sure that everything we were sourcing kind of aligned with these values that we have. Now, if you have a pre-existing business with supply chains already in place, with customer, with a, you know, a strong customer base already there, and an expectation from that customer base of things like price and convenience, it sometimes can be a bit harder because by shifting supply chains, there can be price differences that arise, convenience factors that can shift by, you know, more shipping times and longer waits for certain products because the supply isn't quite there as, as much as some of these products we've been using historically. So I think because I set these up from the ground up with an intention of what I wanted them to be before I even announced them, before I even made them live, it meant that I was able to kind of like properly take time to scrutinize and make sure that these supply chains were in alignment with what it is that I wanted them to be. And with clothing, that was a really interesting one. You know, clothing is one of these aspects where exploitation is so prevalent and so obviously prevalent as well. We're all fully aware of the human exploitation that goes into to many of our clothes. Obviously, we're fully aware of, of some of the animal exploitation that goes into certain garments as well. And so it was interesting to see just how different that challenge was. You know, if we just wanted to set up a, a clothing business that just used the cheapest fabrics that we could make to maximize the income that we wanted to make, you know, that would be really easy to do because that's the model that's currently exists and has existed for so long. But actually what was interesting was seeing that there is this emerging market now of these sustainable fabrics, you know, using innovative things like bamboo and also things like hemp, which is growing and, and different types of plant-based levers like mushroom leather and pineapple leather and, and cactus leather. This is another thing that I, th- I think is really exciting about the plant-based movement is the opportunity for innovation. We're at the precipice of something incredibly exciting, which I think can really show the best traits in humans, you know, our ability to be creative, our ability to adapt in situations where adaptation is necessary, our ability to pioneer novel and new ideas and new resources and and new materials. And the plant-based movement, I think, is a real champion in that because it's about finding better ways of making food, you know, more sustainable and ethical ways of producing food, you know, and food that needs to feed a growing population of people. That presents challenges the innovations and solutions for which are really exciting. But in clothing as well, moving away from these kind of dominant paradigms that have existed for decades, like in the case of animal products, hundreds of years, moving away from that and championing new innovative products, levers that can be made from these really exciting materials and exciting plants, I think is a really wonderful space. And part of the reason why I've moved into the plant-based food space as well as the plant-based clothing space is to really I suppose for myself, see some of these innovations and hopefully get involved in them as well, because these are the things that are going to be used more commonly in the future. And we're at a really unique opportunity and really special opportunity now to be some of those early adopters and to show our intentions and our values early on by championing some of these new things that are emerging right now. That sounds great. And that's a really interesting perspective as well. Beyond net zero targets and ESG is this idea of actually being that change and, you know, the innovation coming from within the business and and kind of being embodied within the business as well. And, And that can sort of be a part of the change that we see in the future as well. I'm just wondering if in your experience with dealing with businesses and your knowledge of ethical and sustainable businesses, are there any kind of businesses that come 
to mind that are maybe sort of their claims of ethical and sustainability, you know, is actually just lip service and, and really it's been quite disappointing. I think there's there's a number that come to mind. I mean, I think what's interesting is a lot of our ideas about businesses and our, and our perception of the ways that they operate has been historically dictated by the information that they put out. And I think what's interesting about what we do to animals is if we look at the meat industry as an example, we have these ideals or these ideas of like what happens to animals and what it is that we're purchasing. And those ideas and ideals have come from what's been perpetuated to us by the very brands and the very companies and the very industries that are selling us these products. And we haven't really historically had much of an opportunity to actually scrutinize these details and look into these things for ourselves. So, you know, the obvious ones for me to say are the the meat industry companies, um, even some of these kind of like welfare labels like Red Tractor and RSPCA, you know, these, these labels and these NGOs and charities that we look to as being beacons of information that's supposed to help animals or, or championing initiatives that are supposed to help animals, when in actuality, that's simply not true. You know, they perpetuate these industries, they kind of provide a, a smokescreen for the abuse to continue. And fundamentally, the people within these NGOs and charities and, and organizations are people who are also often within the industry that they're supposed to be regulating. That's an issue within itself. And so I, I would definitely, you know, point out the welfare labels that we've currently looked or we've historically looked to as providing some sort of uh, validation to our conscience in terms of buying these products. But I think ultimately there is a lot of greenwashing that goes on. There is a lot of humane washing. And this word humane washing is or this phrase is really to to symbolize a similar idea to greenwashing. You know, when when products have a an issue with the ethics behind them, we're often then sold these ideas that you know these products are, are very ethical. And we see it with cloves, but we see it especially with food, you know, free range, organic, red tractor, RSPCA, these are all examples of humane washing. And so I think, you know, whilst these things are obviously really terrible, it does provide us with a unique opportunity to actually stand out and not just stand out in terms of paying lip service to these issues, but stand out in terms of taking meaningful action to address these issues by looking at our supply chains, by removing our participation in industries that are bad, whether they be industries that cause climate problems or ethical problems in terms of what we do to humans or animals. So I think the problem that exists is a very pervasive problem. And it's a, it's a problematic problem because it causes us to feel less deeply about these products that we're purchasing. But as business leaders, it also provides us with an opportunity to properly stand out and be transparent and say, look, don't believe what you're being told here. We've taken these extra steps and we've been very cautious in making sure that the businesses we're investing in or the businesses that we are CEOs of or are in control of, these businesses are actually in alignment with the world that we want to create in the future. And I think that what people want now more than ever is authenticity and honesty and transparency. And people want to feel like they can trust the companies and trust the individuals who they're supporting. And historically, we've not been able to do that. But by providing consumers and participators with this authenticity and, and with this kind of honesty around our objectives and how we're going to achieve them, I think because that's not been something that we're used to as consumers, if someone comes along and does that or, or an industry or a business comes along and truly does that and can back up the statements that they're making, that provides them with a lot of credibility. And I think that will help shape how people perceive them in a very positive way. That's a really powerful idea because, I mean, we are living in a time where 
more than ever, consumers are feeling pretty untrustworthy of various corporations and industries. So yeah, I think like for businesses to realize the power of being transparent and, you know, gaining that trust from consumers is a really powerful thing. So obviously, as we said, you have a really well-known kind of personal brand and you've been able to grow that. I'm wondering if you get anyone coming to you for investment into their own ventures? Is that kind of something that you've ever experienced? People come to me sometimes looking for, I suppose, help with certain ideas, whether that's kind of on a, you know, kind of asking for kind of a a consultant thing to see, hang on a minute, you know, what do you think about this? Should we move this direction? Should we do that? And so that's something that has happened sometimes. There's a natural competition exists within plant-based brands. Of course, that's always going to be the case. But what I think is really interesting about the plant-based space is because it's also value-driven, as well as from a business perspective, wanting to be financially successful, there's this value success as well. I think there is a natural inclination for teamwork, a natural inclination for joint success. And so, you know, there are are plant-based companies who um, I'm very very familiar with whose work I really like. Uh, Minor Figures are an oat milk company, for example, who I think are doing great things. There's a Spanish brand called Aura who have just started selling in the UK in the past six to 12 months or so. They're doing really great things in this space. Uh, There's a brand called VFC, which stands for vegan fried chicken. So I think that there is a growing, I suppose, camaraderie between this need for kind of plant-based business, but also plant-based education. And I think there is this crossover where plant-based businesses and also plant-based educators can combine to create even more powerful messaging. Because like I said before, there's this how and this why, and we need to give people both the how to be vegan and the why to be vegan simultaneously so they can make that choice in that moment. So in terms of like a personal investment, not so much yet, but in terms of a expertise investment, that is definitely something uh, that happens and and will hopefully continue to happen as time goes on. And there's no better way to kind of convince people to become vegan or to kind of join the vegan movement than through these like really good products, because I guess like food is also a very emotionally driven thing that, you know, if, if those products are kind of of a really high standard, then perhaps that's like, you know, another avenue of getting people to join the movement that is different to debating and convincing people as well. I'm just wondering what your experience has been like of gaining investment for the businesses that you have started. Yeah, it's funny. I, I'm, the businesses that I have now, we've not really had any investment for them. So a lot of it's self-funded, um, myself and a couple of other friends. So for example, we have a restaurant down in Brighton called No Catch, which was a self-funded endeavor. The clothing brand has been self-funded. And then initially when I set up my first restaurant called Unity Diner, which is in East London. The actual restaurant runs on as a non-profit. So the investment came from an individual who wanted to fund it and then just wanted to recoup the costs of the initial investments and the initial funding. But then the, the restaurant itself is generating funds for the animal sanctuary that I opened a couple of years ago. So that operates in a, in a very unique model. But then the actual businesses that are, are looking for expansion and growth, like No Catch and like the clothing brand, have been self-funded. So there's actually not been any outsider investment as of yet, at least. Great. I look forward to, you know, visiting one of your restaurants eventually. It sounds great. Now we are going to move to the last segment of the podcast. And this is a segment that we call Answer the Internet. This is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs the answers to. And this question is from Reddit. This user asks, 
Can you explain the argument that consumers should be responsible for climate change when 100 companies are responsible for most of the emissions? Well, it's, it, both things are, are true at the same time. You know, and I think obviously with some of these companies, there's little that we can do as individuals to actually combat the problems that they cause. You know, we th- when we think about fossil fuel companies, a lot of the change that needs to happen with fossil fuels needs to come from a uh, changing in how we subsidize these industries. It needs to come from government legislation. And so we as consumers, when it comes to certain things, don't have that much power. But I think what's interesting about food is it's something that we have a huge amount of influence and power over. I mean, the, the food that's stocked revolves on, on a on somewhat of a supply and demand basis. And so I think what is really exciting about food is it provides us as consumers with a really unique opportunity to actually change these companies. Because if we stop buying meat, dairy, and eggs and start buying plants and plant-based alternatives, then that takes away the funding from these industries. And so it's one of the unique opportunities that we actually have to drive change and to drive private sector change. So I think that if anything, the fact that we often do feel slightly powerless as consumers makes the argument for veganism even more strong because it's one of those rare opportunities where actually we can change the whole system by just changing our habits and changing how we live. So both things are true. And it should never be the case that we as consumers take the burden and blame for climate change, because that's obviously preposterous and obviously outrageous because it's these huge companies and it's also governments who have worked with these companies to deregulate them and to provide them with subsidies and all these things that has driven so many of the problems that we currently face. But that also doesn't mean that we as consumers don't have a responsibility to actually act in accordance with our values. And veganism is beyond climate. It, it's about signaling our intentions in terms of an ethically driven mindset as well, because Whilst what we do to animals has a negative impact on the environment when it comes to emissions and deforestation and land use, fundamentally, it's a movement that's trying to position the rights of non-human animals as being more important than, say, our taste buds or the enjoyment that we get from wearing their skins and their, their bodies. So it transcends beyond simply just being about climate change. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I guess, you know, in a consumer's everyday life, what you eat is a decision that you make kind of three times a day. And yeah, you know, being able to make a decision that many times a day is is something that's quite like rare within any kind of consumer, you know, habit. So yeah, that's an interesting point. And we are Business Leader Magazine. So my next question to you is what makes a great business leader? Authenticity, honest, clear objectives and, and motivations, good communication, respect. I think those things are really important. You know, when you know I've worked with people and hopefully when people have worked with me I think you've got to foster a a relationship of respect and that that doesn't mean necessarily just you know simple compliance it doesn't mean any of those things but it means you know again like we said before earlier an understanding of why people feel the way they do emotional maturity which means that we can stay rational and stay level-headed in situations where those things might be harder to to maintain It's, it's all of these things but I think that for me, a leader is someone who someone can turn to and look at not only for inspiration, but look at as someone who can be a mentor as well. And I think mentorship plays a big part in that. That's great. Thanks, Ed. That's a really good answer. And to finish off the podcast, do you have any final words for our audience today? I think I'd just like to echo what I was saying earlier, which is that we are in a really unique moment in time right now with an industry and a space and a sector 
which has so much room to grow and there is a real urgency and need for this sector to grow. And I think that we're standing at a very unique moment where society and consumers are looking for something different and we need something different. And business leaders are in a very unique position now to be able to invest in businesses that are trying to push plant-based foods and push plant-based innovation and also signal to consumers that there is a space here for businesses to also be a part of positive change and be a part of the solution to these issues. And so I think that it's time to, to realize the responsibility that we have as consumers, but potentially more importantly, as leaders within business spaces, we have a responsibility to use the power and influence and position that we have to create meaningful and impactful change. And there are very easy and simple ways we can do that. And, and one of them is obviously to, to look at how we can do that.